After the sermon, we'll sing together hymn 72. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, as you recognized, of course, our text is from the first letter of John. Who is this John? He's one of the original disciples of the Lord Jesus. Together with his brother James, he was the son of Zebedee. He was also very close to the Lord Jesus. We read in John 21 that this is the disciple whom Jesus loved. We understand that John was a very special, godly man, a special friend of our Lord Jesus Christ. John went on to write the gospel according to John these three letters, and of course, the book of Revelation. So he had a a pretty full life. Now at the time of writing, one John, he's about 80 or 90 years old, somewhere in that uh, decade. By now, Jesus had ascended to heaven 60 years earlier. Peter and Paul had been martyred, murdered 20, 25 years earlier So John was an old man. He had seen it all. And he saw some very positive things. He had seen the gospel of the risen, victorious Christ spread like wildfire through the Roman Empire. And he was part of that himself. Even now, he is a minister in Ephesus. And if you read what he writes, you can see for an 80, 90-year-old guy, he is vibrant, he's vivacious, He's, he's up, up in tune with what's going on. It's, it's amazing writing. Very positive ministry that he had. But there was also a negative side. Because as you understand, the devil does not stand by idly and watch the kingdom of God spread through the face of the earth. No, he stirs up trouble and opposition. And that had started already in the church at Ephesus. Which would not have surprised John. Because many years earlier, Paul had addressed the elders in Ephesus in Acts 20, saying to them, savage wolves will come in among you and not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. That came true in John's time in Ephesus, that within the congregation there were heretics And we read this in chapter 2, who denied that Jesus is the Christ. That Jesus is the Son of God, who came in human flesh, and that only his blood can wash away our sins. Now what happens when you deny all this? What happens when you deny that Jesus is the Christ? Your life begins to crumble. When Christ is not with you, when he's not your personal savior, if he doesn't dwell in your heart and and you and him, you start down the pathway of sin. And we see that in 1 John. They not only spread heresy, they were unloving, they were schismatic, they loved stirring up stuff and ruining the congregation of Jesus Christ. Now, if you think that we're about to have a sermon about heretics and all this sad, miserable stuff, you're in for a surprise because that's not where we're going. Well, keep it in mind. But our text is kind of like like John is saying, time out, everybody. 
There's all this nasty stuff going on, and we have to be aware of that. We have to deal with it. But let's stick to the topic, shall we? The gospel, how amazing is the love of God that he lavished on us that he sent his son to be our Lord and our Savior and to make us his children. Our text is like a breath of fresh air. I I preached this sermon last Sunday, Sunday before. Now I'm going to preach it twice this morning. And and it, it takes my breath away every time. God loved us so much. He gave his son so that we would become children of God again. And the beautiful thing is, if we know that love of God and and Jesus is genuinely our Lord and our Savior, then we cannot go down the pathway of sin. We cannot and we will not. There's There's a strong relationship to where Jesus is in your life and how you live your life. And that's the very thing that we're going to look at together this morning. And we summarize our text in this way. Consider how lavish is the love that the Father has showered upon us in Jesus Christ. We will see three things, what we are, what we shall be, and what we ought to be. Now John starts with these words, see what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. Now what John makes clear here is that the love of God is purpose-driven. It has a very special purpose. It has a very special reason. And it's simple. It's clear. Why does God love us? Why does he lavish his love on us? That we become his children, that we are his family. And, and that's something that's, that's not temporary or fleeting. We read before our text in, in chapter 2, verse 25. And this is what he promised us, even eternal life. He wants us eternally as his sons and daughters. We should realize, of course, that what we have here is, is, a, is a topic that belongs to the big story, the history of the entire Bible. When we read about the love of God that he lavished on us, we go right back to Genesis 1. There we read that God created this world And the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit said, let's make the crowning piece of creation man. So God created man, male and female. He created them in his image. You know what image of God means, boys and girls? What does that mean? It doesn't mean we look like God, of course. For a really good description, we have Lord's Day 3. Lord's Day 3 draws on many parts of the Bible And it says there, God created man good and in his image, that is, in true righteousness and holiness. So that, here's the reason, so that he might rightly know God, his creator, heartily love him, and live with him in eternal blessedness to praise and glorify him. So for God to create man as his image means he created man to be his family, to be sons and daughters who, who would love God and serve him and, and bask in the love and the, and the care and the blessings of, of God. It is a dynamic, beautiful family relationship designed to last eternally. And then Adam and Eve fell 
into sin. And when they did that, they tore everything apart. They denied God as their father. They accepted a new father, and that's the devil, and joined his family. And, and the, the results of that were immediately obvious. Adam and Eve's marriage fell apart right there, had to be restored by God, pointing fingers at each other, accusing each other. Soon there were thorns and thistles and sweat. There was murder. There was hatred, adultery. The world descended into a virtual chaos. Did God just let that go? No, his story continues. And that's what we see in, in our text. Even in this broken world that man messed up, how great is the love the Father has lavished on us. God wants us back to be his family, to take us out of the grip of Satan and make us his sons and daughters again. And how does he do that? Through the gift of his own son, that his son took our sins upon himself, paid for that by his death on the cross, his hellish agony, that we are once again the children of God, as we read in 1 John 1 verse 7, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. And when we are purified from sin, we can live with God again. So heart of the gospel, brothers and sisters, this is the gospel. And John has been preaching it for years and years, decades, his whole adult life, right till he was in his 80s and 90s. This is what he's preaching. Does it get old? I mean, ask yourself the question, are you a little bit bored right now hearing about Jesus dying on the cross again? Does it get old? Does it get boring? What John writes is pure rhapsody. This is the sparkling truth that gets us going every day to know that the blood of Jesus has washed away our sins and we are now the children of God. You know, John writes, see what kind of love the Father has given us. The word he uses in Greek is, of what country is this? Modern expression would be, this love is out of this world. You, you won't find anything like it anywhere. And that reminds us of what Paul writes in Romans 5, where he says, would you consider giving your life to die for someone who hates you, someone who's your enemy? Would you give your son to die for the enemy? Of course we wouldn't do that. But, says Paul, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Like John, Paul is describing God's love as a unique brand. The brand of God's love has no parallel in the whole world because it's love for the unlovable, love for the untouchables, love for those who hated God and left them in the dust and rejected them. This love of God is so out of this world, he gave his son to die for us. And the reason is that we would be called children of God. And in case you think that's only something in name, John quickly adds, and that's what we are. That, brothers and sisters, is amazing love. That's a unique brand of love. 
I, I was lost. I was blind. I was dead in sin. Satan was my father. God so loved me, so loved you, that he gave his son that we would be called children of God once again, right back to where it all started in paradise. Now, at this point, John seems to raise an odd topic. He writes in the second half of verse 1, the reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. But it makes good sense, and it addresses a, a nagging question that every Christian has. To be the children of God means that we are restored as, as his image. We're brought back to that original purpose of paradise that we might know God, love him, and live with him in eternal blessedness to his praise and glory. To be a children of God means we're pushing the darkness back. And, and we are participating in bringing light into this world, the light of God, the light of his word. And you see that, like, if, if you're a child of God, if you, if you walk with Christ, if you keep in step with the Spirit, it'll influence your marriage and your family. Husband and wife who love the Lord and walk with Him, they love each other, they're tender to each other, they respect each other. And, 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 and boys and girls, young people who are, are living a, a genuine faith, they wouldn't participate in bullying or leaving someone out and hurting. They're always reaching for those who are on the edges and on the fringes to show love and care. To be a Christian is a beautiful life. You would imagine it should take the breath of the world away. But why is it then that in Ottawa there's only a handful of MPs who've voted against B? Uh, Bill C-6 about conversion therapy and the MP, MPs who did vote against it like our MP in this, this area he is hated and scorned in social media why is it that when pro-life people have a rally pro-choice attacks them viciously with scornful words and often violence why is it that the world seems to hate and despise Christians from every angle? The reason, says John, is the reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Not everyone has God as their father. Many have Satan as their father. And as we saw later in chapter 3 of 1 John that has a direct impact on how you live your life. And the Lord Jesus made that clear too in John 8 when the Jews hated him and were trying to kill him. Now try to get your mind around that. The Jews with the temple and the Old Testament who have been waiting for the Messiah now wanted to murder him. And Jesus says, you know why you're like that? It's because you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desire." He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. As long as the world is enslaved to the devil and the devil is their father, they will hate everything about God. And you know, brothers and sisters, it's not that the world doesn't know that we are Christians and that we believe in God. They, they, they know that. They say, you're living a lie. It's the, the great delusion. 
you know, you're out of your mind to think that God has given you his word and that you can live by it and you can expect that one day you will have life everlasting. The Lord Jesus says, look, if, if you follow me, the world's going to hate you. You better be ready for that. And indeed, we read in this chapter, verse 13, do not be surprised the world hates you. Don't be surprised. Now, as sad as difficult as that may be, brothers and sisters, there are two positive things that we take away from this. To be identified as a Christian by the world. If the world hates me, if people around me are trying to avoid me because they don't like my Christian beliefs and what I stand for, they say, you're a follower of Jesus. You're out of your mind. How wonderful and amazing is that, that people can see in me that I belong to Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know if we often think about that, that, we, that, we, that we're proud, that we rejoice, that we're identified with Jesus Christ. But you can take a very simple example. You know, when I was younger, my brothers and I, we, we loved music. We loved Gordon Lightfoot. We played a bit of guitar ourselves and, and sang. And if somebody would have said to me, you sound a lot like Gordon Lightfoot, that'd be the biggest compliment in the world. And if they said, and we hate Gordon Lightfoot, big deal. I like him. And if you identify me with him, that's beautiful. In the same way, Jesus, he's our superstar. He is my hero. He is everything. For anyone to say, you belong to him. You're nuts, but you belong to him. That's beautiful. And I'm, I rejoice that I'm in that camp and that I'm washed in his blood and his spirit. That doesn't mean that we're always going to have an easy life. This will, will often hurt. But what's the bigger hurt? Being hated by the world right now? Or missing out on eternal life because you didn't want to be identified with Jesus Christ. See, it is a source of pride when the world despises you because you belong to Jesus Christ. But the other positive thing about this is that we should have empathy and sympathy for the world around us. Not everybody has tasted grace. Not everybody has experienced the, the love of God. We should weep for the world. We should cry for the world. We should pray for those around us who do not believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. So if, for instance, we're at a rally, let's say a, a, a pro-life rally, and, and the pro-choice shows up with their spiteful words and raised fists, don't respond in the same way. Be kind, be gentle, be peaceable, be self-controlled. Seek the opportunity to have the dialogue, to be able to talk about what you believe and how amazing it is to have Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. We always have the opportunity to reach out to our unbelieving neighbor, co-worker, co-student, and show them how amazing is God's love for us. And that brings us to verse 2 and our second point. We have seen that we are God's children now. But in the here and now, there is still suffering. Suffering doesn't always come from the outside. It's not always opposition from the world. It's sometimes from within. And the opposition is that old sinful nature we still struggle with. Sometimes we're our own worst enemy. 
I'll take a, a very simple example. I address the men in the congregation, brothers who are married, and I ask you this simple question, and I ask that myself too. Do you love your wife? Do you treat her with respect and with gentleness and words that are always upbuilding and edifying? Not always, do we? We're sinners who damage ourselves and often do hurt to our wives and our children. And children and young people, are you always careful that you never leave anyone out at school or in the neighborhood? That you would never think of putting someone down or enjoy seeing them squirm? We sometimes do those things, don't we? It's our own sinful nature that creates such problems in our lives and the lives of people around us. But on top of that, there are also things outside our control, natural disasters. Just have to mention COVID, right? That's a, a horrible thing that has raged through our, our world, and that's, that's part of the brokenness of, of life. And there's heart disease and, and cancer. There's terrorism. We've seen that in our own community. Uh, people lashing out at these Muslim women. It, it's terrible things that go on in our world. So what, what, what is our status? We know we're children of God now. we still got all this miserable stuff going on. Is that the way it's going to be eternally? And absolutely not. And every child of God knows that. I mean, take Abraham 5,000 years ago. He was told the promised land is yours. And he never got further than living in a tent. And he was okay with that. And Hebrews 11 explains why. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. That's John's point here too in verse 2. Beloved, now we are children of God. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. Better things are in store for us. Now, we don't know exactly 100% what that will look like. That's why John says, and what we will be has not yet been made known. We get that. Maybe you remember Paul in, in 2 Corinthians 12, he's talking about himself, that he was caught up into heaven. That, that's right, boys and girls, Paul was in heaven. He saw it all. He heard it. He smelled it. He experienced it. He was there in heaven. And then he writes that he heard inexpressible things, things that man is not permitted to tell. I mean, that's a bit of a downer, right? That Paul says, I saw it all, and I'm not allowed to tell you. I think part of the reason he can't tell us is because we can't handle the truth. Heaven will be more beautiful, more amazing than anything we could imagine or dream of. How do you describe that? You're going to have to wait to see it. But the takeaway is, of course, that it will be absolutely beautiful and amazing. And there are many parts of Scripture that do give us insights. Just think of Revelation 21 and 22. Tears will be wiped away from our eyes. Pain, sin, and death will be no more. We will see Jesus Christ face to face, and in him we will see the glory of the Father, and we will be brought into a new Jerusalem, a place of peace, a place
place where we can dwell with our God eternally. So we know that the future will be absolutely amazing. It's not just paradise restored, but paradise restored and highly improved, brought to perfection. Now, what an amazing promise we have here that uh, John writes, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. We will be like him. That's, you know, something you want to think about, that we'll be like Jesus Christ. Almost seems a little blasphemous, doesn't it? I can share with you a story about a, a famous missionary. Whenever he went to a new country and there were converts, he would take the converts and, and, and use those, those people to translate the Bible into their native tongue. And this one brother was translating our text, and he comes to this word, these words, we shall be like him, and he put down his pen. He said, no, missionary, you can't say that. You can't say that we shall be like Christ. How about I write, we shall kiss his feet? But you, you get the point, and you kind of appreciate the emotional state of that new convert. The idea that we will be like Christ is almost too much to accept or to handle or imagine. But we know that that's what the Bible is saying to us. And it says, it says here that um, we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And, and what John is saying is the reason we will be like him, the reason is because we will see him as he is. Which seems a little confusing, but the point is that when the trumpet is sound and the archangel calls and Jesus Christ returns on the clouds of heaven, we will see him and we will know that this is the defining moment where everything changes and all the promises are finally fulfilled. Promises like Philippians 3, that we will be raised up and glorified like the, the body of Jesus Christ. Or 1 Corinthians 15, the, the, the mortal will become immortal. We will become eternal. Or, or 1 Corinthians 13, now I see in a mirror dimly. Then I will see face to face. The most important thing is that when Jesus Christ returns in the clouds of heaven, we will become eternal. If you're, if you're living with cancer in your body, if, if you've got heart disease, if your skin is getting old and your hair is turning gray, all these things could all be transformed in the twinkling of an eye. Beautiful, healthy, amazing bodies. And this is the really important thing. We will be totally transformed by the Holy Spirit. Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 15, totally transformed by the Holy Spirit that we are the perfect children of God. We won't be able to sin anymore. Everything that we think, say, and do will be an act of love to one another and praise and glory to our God. We shall be like Christ. You know, this is such an amazing thing that there may be times that we say, I, I can hardly wait, and if there's anything I can do to kickstart the process and end history, I would gladly do that. I, I wish this world was over. I, I wish I heard the trumpet sound and the archangels call right now. You know, there are other parts of the Bible that seem to go along with that. Paul ends 
1 Corinthians with the words, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Same thing with the ending of Revelation, Amen, come Lord Jesus. And if you combine that with our text, you wonder whether as Christians we shouldn't have a bit of an escapist attitude. Why live in this broken world when the better world awaits us? But we need the right balance between time and eternity. And it may help to think of a a statement that supposedly Martin Luther said. He said, if I knew the world would end tomorrow, I would still plant an apple tree today. Now, boys and girls, you you might have been helping dad and mom plant a vegetable garden. You plant that garden and hopefully you get beans and all these things during the course of the summer. But what if you knew the world would end tomorrow? If you knew the world would end tomorrow, would you still help your mom plant the garden today? It doesn't seem to make sense, right? Well, of course, uh, Martin Luther's statement is maybe a bit of an exaggeration, but the point that he's trying to make is as long as I'm alive, I stay active in the kingdom of God, I'm involved in my family, in the church community, school, work, whatever I do. And Paul makes that point in 1 Corinthians 15 as well, when he talks about, you know, the last enemy, death has been conquered, the sting and the power of death has been removed, then he ends by saying, therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm, let nothing move you, always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. If we have life, we're busy serving the Lord in his kingdom. And as we live that life and, and, and we deal with health issues, we're, we're scorned by the world around us, we always have that comfort. This will not last forever. In fact, any moment, I could hear the trumpet sound. And we enter everlasting glory. So this should be that beautiful balance in the life of every Christian. And that brings us to our, our last point. It's this balanced understanding between what we have now and what we will have when Christ returns that leads John to the concluding statement of verse 3. Everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself just as he is pure. You might say this is where the rubber meets the road. This is where it gets real, right? This is what being a Christian is all about, having a pure life, even as our Lord Jesus Christ was pure. And indeed, if you love the Lord Jesus and you want to be excited and greet the Lord Jesus when you hear the trumpet sound, then we ought to be living as children of God right now. We ought to be pure even as he is pure. And we read that just before our text and just after our text again. If you're a child of God, your life will be a life of righteousness and holiness, purity. Now, John's not saying that the life of a Christian will be sinless. He makes it very clear if you say you're not a sinner, you're a liar. Of course we sin, but we hate it. It grieves us. We want to be forgiven. We want to rise And once again, dedicate our lives to the praise and the glory of God. Now, what John makes clear is that we purify ourselves even as he is pure. And that's our Lord Jesus Christ. So at the heart of a life that's holy and living as a child of God is our Lord Jesus Christ. It sounds a bit like he is our example. 
But of course, Jesus is our example. He showed in his earthly ministry genuine love for the people around him, and he even loved those who hated him. You know, there's been a whole movement, maybe remember years ago, people had bracelets, WWJD, what would Jesus do? So that in every situation you would say, what would Jesus do? Brothers and sisters, the example of Jesus is utterly useless. The example of Jesus is utterly useless unless Jesus is also your personal Savior. That you are into him and he is into you. Jesus doesn't just give us an example. He is the foundation of why we are children of God. It's his blood that washes away our sins. It is his spirit who causes us to be born again. It's his spirit that we can keep in step with so that we keep the fruit of the spirit like love, joy, peace, gentleness, and so on. So what this means, brothers and sisters, is that we don't just say Jesus is our example. We don't even simply say, I believe in Jesus. But Jesus has to be our all in all. That there's not a day that goes by that I don't have that meeting with the Lord Jesus Christ where we say, I love you and I adore you. You died for me. It's your blood that, that bathes me and takes away my sins. It's your spirit who causes me to be born again. This is unbelievable, Lord Jesus, what you have done for me and the, that, that you made me ch a child of God. And that that leads to, to loving reading the Bible and meditating on it because in the Bible, as John Calvin said, Jesus steps off the pages of Scripture right into our heart. And then we pray because that's how we talk to him and we hear his response in his word and in the things that we do in our lives. Brothers and sisters, if we have that, that genuine, living, personal relationship with Jesus Christ, that changes everything. You notice that, that ultimately John doesn't make this a command, but it's a simple statement. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. This is what will happen. This is who you are when you are into Jesus and we see that happening in life when, when in a family and a marriage, Jesus Christ is very, very much present, loved and adored and respected. Husband and wife, they love each other. They forgive each other. They respect each other. Same thing with parents and, and children. And our children and our young people have this longing to include the, the newcomer, the person on the edges, the person who's a little different, maybe different color or whatever. Include people because there is that love that Jesus Christ has filled into our hearts. And then when it comes to our sins, and we all have them, we have our sins, sinful patterns, sinful addictions, if you think you're going to kick it just because you're going to give it a little bit more focus, good luck with that. If you think, well, I just got to read the Ten Commandments a, a little bit more, good luck with that too. It's not going to work. 
but it's that relationship with Jesus Christ, living, alive, exciting, vivacious, knowing he's our Savior, loving him as our, as our, our brother and our friend, our Lord and our Savior, that transforms life. Then we seize that commandment and we, we seize that desire to change life and we do it in our Lord Jesus Christ. How amazing is that love of God out of this world that he gave his son to be our Lord and Savior and his spirit to dwell in our hearts that we are born again. This is who we are. This is what we are. And this is what we will be eternally as we live to the praise and the glory of our God. Amen.